Hey everyone, you're listening to the Simple Electronics Podcast. I'm your host, Simple Electronics. And with me today, I have a very special guest. I have Anthony from One Circuit. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Yeah, I'm pleased to be, uh, pleased to be here. Well, I'm really happy to have you, and uh, thanks for reaching out on uh, Twitter for this. Uh, yes, well, I, uh, I couldn't resist the, uh, the chance of following up on Big Clive. That's a, <laughs> that's a heck of a headline uh, opener, that one. Yeah, I'm really, I'm really proud of that one. I'm, I'm happy he made some time. But, I mean, let's not sell you short. Can you, uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself so that the listeners will want to go subscribe to you? Uh, sure. Um, so, uh, how do, well, I'm an educator. Um, so I've been teaching now for three decades. Prior to that, I, I worked uh, in the federal public service here in uh, intellectual property. And prior to that, I was in industry. So... Um, that's my work history. I have been programming uh, computers of one form or another since uh, 1978-ish. I think it was an Apple IIc um, way back when in basic. And then uh, I'd probably say that most of my uh, work has been in programming. And uh, I got up to doing assembler code in the 1990s, early 1990s on an Amiga 500. And uh, then as the computers got more powerful, I tended to then uh, use more languages like Java and Python. But then along comes uh, the Arduino and space is at a premium and I've got back into, um, back into coding and coding in Arduino is no fun unless it does something. So that's, that's how the electronics followed after that. Yeah, uh, coding is still, you know, that's my, that's my Achilles heel. Uh, basically, because uh, coding and I, we, we don't get along. Like, I'm trying my best, but uh, most of my projects end up just mashing libraries together and examples for it to work. So um, I really have a lot of respect for people who program uh, and program well. So that would be you, I'm guessing. Well, I still, I mean, I still use, if the library is available, I'd still do that. But I think when space becomes a premium, so I've been definitely concentrating on things like the ATiny 13, uh, which is 1K, so um, yeah, it becomes pretty important to, to save space. And I just draw, draw down on some of my early ex- experiences with the Amiga where I was changing their standard um, code, which would be to, to copy files, for instance. Most of their sort of code was around four kilobytes because they, they had standard headers and all that sort of stuff. Um, I just did them all in assembler to save space on the hard drive, was the original. Um, goal, but um, yeah, learned a lot about assembly on the way, and now that the uh, microcontrollers are, are available, I'm, I'm going back to that sort of that sort of time when space was a premium. But it, but if if it's not, I will I will lean on the libraries as well. Um, can you tell us the genesis of the name One Circuit? Because I actually just recently found out what you mean by that. So can you explain that? <laughs> Yeah. Well, it's poor research is what you'd call it, I suppose, because when I started, I thought I, I, I want to make set an aim because it's, um, it, it's important for me to have uh, some benchmarks along the way. So my aim was to produce one interesting circuit per week. I'd been buying components online for a while and they were sitting around in these big buckets, which they still do. And I thought, wouldn't it be great to just reach into those buckets and grab something fairly randomly and, uh, and look at it and go, what can I build out of this? So... Um, that's how it started, but the poor, poor research comes from the fact that when I registered and started work, it was pointed out to me pretty quickly that there's uh, another one circuit more famous than me, um, and he mostly does arcade sort of stuff. So 
thinking about it, I probably should have done a bit of research before actually choosing the name. It suits, but it's not the only one out there. <laughs> yeah, well, talk about poor research. I'm called Simple Electronics, and there's a way bigger channel called Simply Electronics, which um, quite often I've gotten Patreon subscribers that unsubscribe after a month, and the um, the exit survey says, I thought I was subscribing to Simply Electronics. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, never mind. Yeah, so um, I did reach out to uh, one circuit, the other one, didn't get a reply, so I'm assuming he's not too fussed that there's a there's a guy in Tasmania pottering along on his uh, breadboard every week. What's the what's the weather like in Tasmania? I have to ask because, like, Canada's on fire right now. Yeah, I saw that. Look, I've been looking at some of the temperatures in the Northern Hemisphere and going, oh, my God, uh, what a summer you are having. Um, but um, we're midwinter, so it's not unusual for me to wake up uh, to zero um, or one degree and we get up to around 12 or 13 degrees this is celsius during the day wow that's uh that sounds just like uh let's say early summer for us <laughs> usually uh, yeah it's pretty pleasant though i mean it's um it's sunny outside at the moment and that's the one thing you can say about um about tasmanian weather it gets a bit of a bad rap but we have a lot of sunny days yeah, and um, and that's that's where I guess one of your projects comes in. Um, you were having a lot of fun with the uh, QX five two five two chips, weren't you? Yeah, and still am. It's it's certainly one of my favourites, and uh, I love the idea of something for nothing, and the idea that you can sit um, uh, a little solar panel on the windowsill all day and then do something with it. Uh, with the power accumulated, and it's it's a, it's a multifaceted um, project really because it's got the whole um, how do you squeeze the most out of the the QX five two five two, but it also at the other end if you are going to do something with the power, say with an A tiny thirteen, how do you um, reduce the power requirements of that? So that led to uh, setting the clock at one hundred twenty eight kilohertz. Uh, instead of it can gallop along at up to 9.6 megahertz and that makes a significant saving uh, and swapping over from uh, C to assembler uh, has made a difference as well uh, looking at the code and how it's how it's being used um, yeah so I, you know pleased to report that um, even in the middle of winter here where we don't I, I go to work in the dark and get home in the dark but um, but those little projects are still ticking along so it's been it's been a great journey, and I'm and I'm still exploring because um, I was thinking about how do we how do we also get energy out of it during the day when the sun's actually shining, and I made the assumption that if I use two of them, uh, that could be that could be a way around it, and it did work. But then I discovered that there's a um, a SOT twenty three five version where you can actually switch it on and off by uh, pulling one of the uh, the pins. I think it's low. And, um, and so now I've got projects that go day and night, uh, whether the sun's shining or not, which is, which is great. Can you just give us a quick rundown of what the QX5252 is? Because you and I know, because uh, you've been working with it and I've ordered some. But what about for the listeners? Can you just give a, just a brief uh, description of what it does? Sure. So um, it was a bit serendipitous that I discovered it. I just pulled apart uh, one of these cheap solar lights that you um, that you can buy anywhere and inside uh, sometimes it's a blob but this particular one had qx5252 written on it so then it was a matter of trying to find could i buy that chip um, by itself uh, as is and you can 
and then finding a data sheet that made sense was was um, was the interesting one. So the idea is that it, it it's got an input from the solar panel as well as from a battery, and I use a single double A nickel metal hydride battery. And uh, so when the sun's shining, in, in, this is in the TO92 form of the of the chip. When the sun's shining, uh, it it puts energy through to the battery and shuts off the output. Uh, but there's when the solar panel detects that there's you know that the light has dropped away, it switches over to output mode. And in its original form, it'll just put out a wave form uh, via a couple of components. Uh, you need an inductor, and the size of the inductor determines the strength of the current. Uh, and then you can most, I mean, in, in its original form, it just goes straight to an LED, and, and it, because it's oscillating so quickly, uh, I think it's 140 odd kilohertz, um, the human eye will just pick it up as a steady light. But what I was interested in is, could you, uh, could you make that voltage stable uh, such that you could run a microcontroller? And I did a lot of hunting around online and a lot of experimenting and eventually came up with a setup that uh, allows me to draw what voltage I want through a Zener. That's usually around the anywhere between the 3.3 volts to the 5 volt mark. And again, you know, when it comes to, when it comes down to squeezing power, if you can if you can run the A-Tiny 13 at, at 3 volts, um, that's fine. So you put the Zener to clamp the, um, to clamp the voltage and... Uh, there's a couple of diodes there which um, which give you a, a more stable waveform coming out, and I was probably more surprised than anyone else that um, not only does it work, but it, it actually works pretty well. Yeah, so just to, to clarify, in case I've got this wrong, but you're basically using one of the little circuits that they use to charge uh, uh, nickel metal hydride batteries in those little solar garden lights. You're harvesting that kind of whole circuitry with some modifications in order to run a microcontroller. You're basically charging a, a capacitor to run a microcontroller, right? Yeah, it, correct. And um, to run at night and day. So that's 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 the amazing thing. So I've got some projects that have been running for months now. And um, they, of course, it's just blinking lights because we all love that. But it's, just, it's proof of concept that um, that you can run these, these uh, little microcontrollers, which don't require an awful lot of energy in the right in the right configuration uh, from this you know fairly anemic solar cell, this amazing chip and um, and a single battery. I wonder if it would be possible to uh, because these chips are actually extremely cheap, and so are the inductors because it's mostly the chip, the inductor, and and a couple diodes you need and a couple of caps I think to make yep. it work. I wonder if it'd be possible to uh, to parallel you know. I don't know, 40 of these things and charge like a 12 volt battery, like a car battery up. <laughs> I think that'd be well, pretty well, talk, interesting. You're talking about uh, minuscule amounts of current. So that would be, I certainly have thought about the idea of scaling up though. Um, yes, I guess that's that's something for the uh, for the future. The, uh, the, from memory, the actual specification of the QX5252, it starts to r run out at about, I think it's around two and a half volts input or something like that. I'd have to check the data sheet again, but uh, having a big solar panel attached to it, it just fries it. So I have tried that um, before reading the data sheet, which is often the way I do my projects. Um, but um, yeah, I think there is some scalability possible, how that's going to unfold over the next year or so. I'm not real sure. Yeah, I mean, either way, just messing around with these things 
because they're so inexpensive, I mean, that's just that's, that's just the fantastic way to do it, right? You're just, who, who cares if you burn a couple of these out? I mean, it's all in the name of science at this point. Exactly, yeah. And I think we've, I was very fortunate when I was started getting into this sort of um, line of inquiry, I suppose, that, that the, that the, the chips were available fairly cheaply and freely and the freight was good. And I mean, even at that time, the Australian government wasn't even charging any goods and services tax on incoming, which they are now. But there was a bit of a golden era there of a year or two where I just thought, uh, and it was often in response to a YouTube video. So you know, I'd see someone say, how I'd like to have a look at that. And so you just um, you know, put an order in and then it would arrive. And um, yeah, that's how I accumulated, you know, as I said, lots of buckets. And now um, it's fun playing. But I, I do worry about the, um, the people just starting out because it's, it's not good for, um, for supply and, and price at the moment. Freight just seems to be all a bit tricky. Yeah, the, I think the, the whole world still needs to uh, recover from, you know, the 2020 from hell, basically. Yeah, yeah it seems to be rolling into 2021 when it comes to um, microcontrollers. I mean, some of the chips that I used to order and just wonder, you know, how on earth I, I was so lucky to get them in at, at that price. Well, if you can get them now, um, and that's that's one part of the equation, but the, the prices are just, um, well, for a hobbyist, just prohibitive. Yeah, actually, uh, speaking of which, I was talking to Big Clive last week about the uh, Paduk microcontrollers, and you actually soldered up. I was talking about the the free PDK project, and you actually soldered one up. How did that go for you? <laughs> oh man, what a journey that was! Yeah, so let's say in the end successful, but boy, did I learn a lot along the way. So. It's a it's an amazing project. It all started, of course, with Dave and EEV blog and people trying to reverse engineer these these chips, which were so cheap and, and seemed to have such amazing um, capabilities, and they did. And um, and so I thought, probably about a year or so ago, I'll um, I'll jump on that bandwagon. So, um, but my soldering skills were not really up to the requirements. So. One of the branches that I took was I'll make my own version, which was just hubris, really, because in the end, um, their version is is put together for a reason, put together by people who know what they're doing. My version was put together by someone who didn't really understand what they were doing, and um, that's all documented on the on the YouTube channel. But um, that branch has pretty much died, although at the moment I'm thinking about digging them out and recovering the uh, STM32s on there because they're worth quite a bit now. Um, but the second thing I did was I thought, well, if I can't solder these little components up, uh, I will try to do reflow. So um, I delved into the, the, the whole um, subculture, I guess you'd call it, of buying a cheap uh, toaster oven from, uh, from the local store and uh, repurposing it. And that's how I got my first working uh, Paduk programmer. And uh, yeah, that, that's quite a joy, quite a journey, but a, a but lovely result. Yeah, I, I really wish there was, um, I wish they made the Paduk programmer in kit form because I think the biggest thing for me is that like if I'm going to be ordering like let's say a surface mount switch or or a diode or a regulator, I would have to order a hundred of them for it to be economically viable to get them, either get them in, you know, like from AliExpress or whatever and then get them shipped to Canada. So, I mean... Like the, I love the the fact that there's an open source 
uh, programmer for it. I just wish someone would assemble kits. I would I would gladly pay them a little bit more, right? So I don't have to order like a hundred parts that I'm going to use one of. This is yeah. the, this is the downside with it, I think. Yeah, and and that's the direction that I thought I was going in, and. Uh, you know, I think when I'm documenting the what I call the old man version uh, of the program, I say, you know, I don't, I'm not sure this is completely dead because you, you're quite right. If there was a version that was essentially throughput and you just ordered it in kit form, people people would buy them. Of course, at the moment, the real problem with that is that you can't get the Paduk chips for love nor money either. So, um, yeah, it's an inter- interesting time uh, for that whole project. But the work that's been done is, is astonishing and it's it was like i said really pleasing to get to the point where i could actually program one of these things and i'm now since then taken it to the point where i've um, been using it uh, where the a tiny 13 was so i'm starting to look at replacing that essentially because it has three independent 11-bit pwm channels which for the for the price of it is astonishing um so i'm looking at programming that and even uh, starting to to relearn some of my old 16-bit uh, assembly arithmetic. So there's a few videos coming up on that at the moment, which um, you know I imagine a lot of people would be turned off by. But the, the whole point of it is that if I'm going to dive into the uh, the Buduks, uh, I would I would prefer to do it at an assembly level. So um, that's currently what's on the back. Well, not so much the back burner, but it's bubbling along in the background. Let's say. Yeah, is that is that the problem with those uh, Paduk microcontrollers that they really don't have the memory that the uh, AT Tiny series has? Uh, no, I think uh, well, I used the PFS one five four, and that's actually double the memory. So I think the real problem has been when I first looked at them, the um, the data sheet was a nonsense. That's really quite good now. It's, it's it, they've done really really well. I think the last version was produced in English around about June last year. And it's it's really good, um, and of course, the free PDK project has such a lot of information on there for people who are who are um, experimenting around the edges like myself, um, and people post stuff there, and, and um, yeah, I hope to eventually be able to contribute uh, in terms of code as well. I guess the thing at the moment is I've been successful in programming in sort of a, a version of C, which they use the small device compiler, the C compiler for this, the SDCC, and that's fine. Um, but I think I was saying earlier about the ATiny 13, one of the um, challenges is the, is the size of the memory. And so I pretty early switched uh, to a, a assembly, and I th- I'm, I'm hoping to take the same route with the, uh, the PFS154. And, you know, I mean, when I first started looking at it, they were something like, I can't remember, something like $20 to get 500 of them. So I thought, hey, that'd be nice. Well, <laughs> you just can't get them now. So I've got a big pile of them and I'll have to do something with them. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, how about people like me? So I'm in my uh, early to mid 30s and I've like I've started with Arduino. And I think a lot of people today have also started with Arduino. Um, what kind of advice do you have for people like me that want to dip their toes into assembly? Like, where do we go? Where do we start? What do we do? Yeah, I mean, there's some great resources. There's a guy called Gerhard Schmidt in uh, Germany, and he's got an amazing site, including uh, freely downloadable software called AVR Sim, uh, which is multi-platform. 
and uh, it's you can program in assembly using either his resources or other resources that you can find on the internet. For instance, at, pla- at sites like uh, forums like the AVR Freaks forum, there's lots of code available through that, and and uh, you can run it on um, GERD's simulator and see what it does. And I've got a few videos um, on my channel which I do exactly that, and a, and a few more coming up. And, uh, and then when you're finally confident that it's doing what you want it to do, then um, then obviously you swap the chip in and, uh, and away you go. Um, I, when I first started, I, I, I thought, how can I do this methodically and document what I'm doing? So I actually went to the first um, opcode and put it in and saw what it did on the simulator. And then I wrote something about it and it turned into a, a sort of a booklet, I guess, of every single... Um, assembly code for the ATINY 13 and for me that was a way of really getting my head around what each individual one did before I started saying okay now I can combine these in some meaningful way. Interesting so you mean like people like me don't even have to um, like have the chip in hand we can just use the AVR sim and then go to town then? Yeah and I would certainly recommend that because um, you know when you're doing when you're trying to figure out what what something does in terms of moving data around the registers uh, and you know the different types of registers and how they're used and the ATINY 13 for instance doesn't have any hardware multiplication so you know to work out how to do that in software you don't you know you wouldn't really need a chip a chip would just just, just be sitting there doing whatever inside you it's inscrutable you don't know but when you are looking at the simulator you can see exactly what's what's happening I, I love doing that. I just wonder about the people watching my videos, whether they're using it to get to sleep at night or not, because it's, uh, I imagine it could be quite dry, but I just love the idea of getting right under the hood of these chips and, um, and moving stuff around and seeing what happens. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'm like, I'm still basically right now, the thought of programming a PIC microcontroller with a PIC kit is already uh, daunting for me. So uh, assembly language will have to wait a little bit, but uh, it's definitely on my to-do list. Yeah, I I think a a natural progression from the Arduino to to go the other way is um, the ESP8266 or the ESP32 is... There's such lovely devices to take what you know from Arduino and then add a Bluetooth or a, a Wi-Fi component to it. So um, when I teach students, I, I don't go down the, the route of assembler. Um, you know, they can they can do that at a later stage if they want. Of course, we talk about, you know, binary and we talk about logic and all that sort of stuff. But for sheer bang for buck, um, for them is to be doing something that they can control using their phone over Bluetooth. And those little chips, you know, they're, they're cheaper than an Arduino. Um, and uh, some of the modules that they're available on are, um, are just amazing. So yeah, that's a, that's another direction to go, not um, not going down to the smaller ones with the assembler code, but, but doing this connectivity bet- between devices or between the devices and the internet or, or what have you, the sky's the limit. Or even just using the fact that it's a uh, it's a 32-bit, I think it's a dual-core processor on top of that. Oh, the ESP32 is amazing, uh, some of the capacities. And there's a few different versions out there. But um, yeah, uh, multi-core, I think there's ones, there's, there's uh, a smaller chip in there which 
can sort of monitor the others so you can have it into a really really deep sleep uh, just ticking over and then waking up to do stuff so that's a sort of a, a candidate i think eventually for pairing up with a qx5252 um, i mean i live in a fire uh, hazard area and I, I have done some experimentation with um, having sensors out there that then can let's say pick up a change in temperature or perhaps pick up a gas or pick up infrared whatever it happens to be the trigger that there's a fire front coming through and then maybe communicate um, maybe LoRAR I guess or or through an array of these sensors to get back and say hey you know 10 kilometers away there's a there's a front coming through um, yeah so I, I, I like the idea of something that's sitting out there doing basically nothing most of the time but then wakes up and does what you want it to do at the appropriate time yeah, that would be something. Um, listen, I know you are short on time, and there is a question I ask every single one of my guests. So, do you mind if I if I hit you with that one? Go for it. So, um, the question goes: You have a government grant to start the business of your dreams. It does not have to provide a service. Uh, it does not have to be profitable. Sorry, but it does have to pro- provide either a service or a product. What kind of business would you start? Yeah, that's, that's a, that is a good question. I, I've always liked the idea um, of a traveling uh, educator. So schools um, typically don't have the capacity and perhaps quite um, the budget sometimes to dive into areas like electronics and coding. Um, but imagine traveling around in a, in a, a truck which opens up. I mean, I know that there are businesses that run like this for things like libraries and so forth. So you go to remote areas or you go to schools that, you know, don't have access to uh, the funding or the or the teaching capacity and you run taster events uh, that then lead the students to uh, perhaps go a bit further. I mean, I'm, I'm from a, a country town in the middle of nowhere and, um, you know, we had an Apple IIc computer back in 1978 that was sitting in the, um, the, the cleaners cupboard and um, I used to go uh, and go there on the weekend and, and beg my way in via the, um, the, the, uh, the cleaner that looked after the place on the weekend, the, the, um, I don't know what you'd call it, but someone who's sort of like keeps an eye on security and so forth, but um, I used to get let in and, and sit in this little room and try and nut this thing out by myself, but what a difference it would have made if, if you know, someone have come along with the right equipment and the right knowledge to um, to spark that that journey. Because I think, you know, it, it, if we can throw the, the net really wide, um, that could have quite an impact. Yeah, and that's really respectable. I think, uh, you know, if you think about it, that's sort of what we're doing with our YouTube channels these days because it's the exposure, right? Um, I mean, we have our regular viewers probably. Well, I do. I don't. You probably do too. But it's when you get the new subscribers that tell you, you know, like for example, I had one uh, recently. Uh, he said, uh, "I'm 56 years old, and I felt like learning electronics. I found your channel, and now I'm going to learn them." So it's yeah, you know, fantastic. it's just proof that you just need to expose people to stuff, and then they will, they will learn stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's, there's quite a reach. I think kids are slightly different in that um, they do watch a lot of YouTube, um, but they're experiential, so they need to see, okay, so I can code this, 
but then to see a, a little robot move or a light blink or sound, I've done lots of lots of little projects with kids, and it's the it's having it in their hand, which really uh, makes a big difference. And um, of course, they don't have that equipment, and then that and. They don't, as I said, have the knowledge in the in those um, institutes to to take that any further. So, I think that's a yeah, that's one possibility. I know that they do it with um, travelling science shows and travelling math shows and travelling literacy, but um, I've not seen an awful lot. They're starting to ramp up what they call in this country STEM, which is um, science, technology, engineering, and maths. But it's not quite what what uh, I'm envisaging here. This is a little bit more um, nerdier, I guess, and a little bit more focused on the, the coding and the um, the product at the end, something useful that that, um, that does something. Yeah, I wish, uh, you know, when, I, when in high school, I learned um, coding through Visual Basic. I really wish it was more of like a, a C type language that I would have learned because I probably would be more useful now than uh, Visual Basic was then. Yeah, uh, finding a language that's both useful and also good for teaching is difficult. So uh, back in the 80s uh, and into the 90s, it was uh, Pascal, which was beautiful for that purpose. Uh, we switched over to Java and it got a little bit murky there for a while and then Python arrived and uh, that's a beautiful language, I think, for kids to learn. So that's they start off with um, with Scratch normally at the, at the junior level, but we try and graduate them through to something like Python by the time they get to uh, the high school. And with Python, you can do all sorts of things. Like uh, my wife was just uh, picking it up recently and uh, there's literally libraries and modules for everything. Like it's amazing. Yes, and one thing which I haven't really uh, dipped a toe into yet, but I, I want to is MicroPython. Um, so you know the idea that you can run Python-like code on a microcontroller. So I'm very keen to explore that at some stage. I don't think my you know like the ideas from the buckets will dry up in a hurry. So that might be some time down the down the track. But that'd be really interesting, I think. Yeah, I've got. I'm lucky. So um, Sion, the unexpected maker, sent me a um, tiny Pico, and I also bought uh, from my Adafruit uh, interview with. Um, Oh, geez, what's his name now? I'm terrible with names. Um, uh, Scott Shawcroft, there we go. Um, I bought a, um, a Playground, Adafruit Playground Express, something like that. So I will be trying both those, Micro and CircuitPython, the two sort of two sides of the same coin. But uh, again, it's the learning part. It's a bit daunting either way. Yes, and I'm also uh, mindful that uh, for me, anyway, I, I need to go down a long way down the pathway so that I don't end up having a bit of a scattergun approach to a lot of different things. I try and keep myself limited to two or three things on the go and try for the deep dive. So um, I also have one of Sion's devices, and it's been sitting on the um, on the on my desk staring at me for a while now. But I'm I'm reluctant in a way to go down that path because I know it would then detract from some of the other things that I'm trying to achieve. Yeah, I'm not worried about any of that because nothing that I'm achieve I'm achieving is all that great after all. <laughs> it's I'm just sure all scatterbrain stuff. I'm sure that's not true, Dan. I'm sure that's not true. <laughs> you don't watch my channel, do you? I do. I do. Yeah, I watch. I mean, that's the thing too. Like you were quite right in in you know in how important it is to have a a range of voices of people out there who are passionate. Um, it's it's just such a um, a joy to uh, to come home and to have. 
you know all the notifications of all my all my favorites there and yeah it's it's um, it's great and some, and some, some of the uh, like we were talking about Big Clive before and you know there's great Scott and Julian in the UK there's so many people that have inspired me over the last um, few years and um, I just think it's a it's a wonderful community yeah I think uh, Julian's approach is probably the best way for me to learn uh, programming because he sort of cuts corners and um, you know, he, he like takes pieces of code out and stuff and stuff still works. So it's very encouraging to me. Um, when I watch Julian's videos, I'm like, you know what, maybe I could do this. But when I watch someone who's like uh, very good at, at programming, they just go too fast and it's just way over my head. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that you can't, you can't, uh, overrate the importance of play and that's where working with, uh, with kids is great because there's no fear. And they love to play, and um, and that's when I think you get things done. So if you can sort of tap into that idea, uh, I think we we're talking before about cheap components that um, that could blow up, but it doesn't matter, right? So you just have a bit of a play and, and see what happens, and that that lack of fear, um, which um, yeah, which, which often leads to a breakthrough. I'm I'm going to be really honest here. I work with uh, tradespeople. I teach tradespeople, and um, watching them type the incorrect password uh, three times in a row while doing the old hunt and peck routine on the keyboard makes me think that I wouldn't want to teach a programming class. Is there any truth to that, or what? Um, yeah. Look, it's always a fine line between allowing them to make mistakes. It's called productive struggle. You know, we there's a, there's a bit of sweat on the brow, but there's still progress. Uh, and that's really in the realm of a competent teacher is to try and evaluate every single person in the room is to see how much support that they do need. So there will be those ones that you have to reach over the shoulder and, and, uh, and literally point at the screen and say, there's the error. But there are others that you judge from knowing them where you say, okay, so I can see the error on the screen. It's, it's something to do with the way that you've set up your uh, variables. Do you want to take a look at that? And then you come around in a circuit. And more often than not, if you've made the correct judgment, they've, they've been able to fix it. So it's a bit of a, it's a you know, teaching is a bit of a juggling routine, uh, as you know. So uh, the one size fits all method uh, when it comes to anything, but particularly programming, uh, is not going to work. Yeah, I think I think that's where my disconnect happens is that my my students are coming to me to learn about cars and then they're kind of blown away when when we have to talk about computer skills. So at, at least uh, programming in, in the context of a programming class, at least the whole context is continuous, right? Yeah. And isn't it interesting, though, with uh, talking about um, programming in cars, about uh, what the worldwide shortage is doing to the car industry that was that was quite a shock and now you've got um, companies in Germany setting up their own um, chip manufacturing to deal with the shortage so it's just fascinating what's going on out there at the moment yeah the USA is doing that too um, I think Canada might be doing that as well but uh, in a slower pace I mean we're only 35 million people here so I mean I, I don't think we have much drive to build giant fabs like that no, and it, and it would make more sense geographically for Europe as well. And of course, they used to uh, they used to do it, so they're just really um, often retooling. They're not they're not setting up from scratch. They know what to do, but um, they've been so reliant on the um, on the Asian manufacturing for such a time that when that you know has uh, has proved difficult, um, they can jump back uh, straight in. And and, you're, and it's the same with Australia. We, we would we would really struggle to. Uh, to to uh, to manufacture from scratch so but very interesting times we live in when you've got you know obviously we've got a level of technology where we expect 
in a car that everything is controlled uh, and then how fragile that becomes uh, when uh, when there's a problem with programming uh, or supply of chips. Um, Australia, if you look geographically, I mean, you guys can almost get a get silicon delivered by land. I mean, if you take enough detours, it's close enough compared to like North America, for example, which you have to go all the way across the ocean. Things can go wrong pretty quickly. And so they should have seen this coming before. Absolutely. And it's the it's the old story when it happens. I mean, every time you've got a monopoly uh, or one or two players in the industry, um, yeah, of course it's you know it's going to go wrong. What what always surprises me there's no plan B that uh, people are scrabbling around when it happens. Um, and perhaps we need to be a bit smarter about about the whole idea that if you've just got the one supply chain, you might need to do some diversification along the along the way. Who could have predicted a global pandemic aside from scientists for the last thirty years? <laughs> Indeed, yeah, and uh, it's amazing how. Um, I, I find it fascinating how politicized it's become and also how we have had pandemics on this planet before and we don't seem to have learned from them. But the, the being somehow the science being linked to a particular political persuasion, I just find that um, amazing. Yep. Uh, try living in my geographical position. Uh, we've got uh, neighbors that politicize everything, so it's quite mm. the shame. Yes, it is. Never mind. We're, we'll just keep trying to get the word out as, as best we can via the um, via YouTube and blogging and whatever else. And I, I guess people then at least have got the information. I think it might come down to perhaps sometimes too much information and perhaps not the right the sort of uh, not the right sort of filters to be able to deal with that without the influx. Yeah, and uh, thankfully I'm not a scientist. I just blink LEDs on a YouTube channel, so I don't, <laughs> I don't have to worry about it too too much. And what fun that is! Yeah. Um, any closing thoughts? No, no. I just um, thank you for the time. It's really nice to um, to chat with a um, a like minded educator. So uh, really appreciated that, and um, no doubt we'll um, our paths will cross again. Yeah, here's hoping. And uh, for those of you listening, I need you to go over to uh, One Circuit's YouTube channel uh, and hit that subscribe button. Leave him a comment. Let him know that you lasted all the way to the end of this interview because that is always the best type of people. It's probably about uh, about 15% of you make it all the way to the end. So I need you guys to go so hit subscribe and uh, I'll, I'll put all the links that we talked about in the description below. Thanks, thanks again, you guys, for listening. Thanks, Dan. Bye.